Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. In this episode, we continue our current series on the Eastern Front. Last episode, I covered the Battle of Stalingrad, but I feel somewhat remiss that it only occupied about half an episode when I spent like four episodes on Guadalcanal, so I feel I should explain myself a little bit. I certainly could have spent several episodes discussing Stalingrad alone, but I'm not sure that would have been the best application of my time and energy. The main reason being that despite the surrender at Stalingrad being a pivotal event, the Battle of Stalingrad isn't necessarily as pivotal. Also, Stalingrad was only one event in the massive, fluid Russian theater. To focus down too closely on Stalingrad narratively is to make the same mistake Hitler did. There was so much else going on that was also important. Second, I focused on Guadalcanal so much because, for one, one of my major sources was a veteran of the battle, so he has a lot to say about it, but two, because Guadalcanal was the defining event of the early Pacific War. Unlike the Russian theater, the Pacific theater was kind of a one-ring circus, at least in the early war. Guadalcanal was kind of the only thing going on there at the time, and it was the linchpin of the theater. In this episode, I'll discuss the aftermath of the surrender of Stalingrad, and the lead-up to the Battle of Kursk, which I think was actually much more pivotal for the fate of the Eastern Front. Stalingrad sowed the seeds of doubt in Hitler's mind, and marked a shift in momentum, but Kursk would really mark the emergence of the new Red Army that would drive all the way back to Berlin. So let's begin episode 34, Zhukov's Cauldron. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? So as we discussed the end of the North Africa campaign and the Battle of Stalingrad, I left out a pretty major event, the Casablanca Conference. The conference at Casablanca was one of the defining events of the war, and perhaps I should have included it earlier in the narrative. Casablanca would determine how the mid-war would progress, and set the stage for the late war. From January 14th to 24th, Churchill and Roosevelt would meet in the newly liberated Moroccan city to discuss how the war would progress after the North Africa campaign. Most importantly, when the cross-channel invasion would occur, and what America's commitment to Europe would be vis-a-vis -vis the Pacific. Stalin would have attended, but he was so caught up in Stalingrad that he couldn't leave his headquarters. The Casablanca Conference was surprisingly harmonious. Despite the competing strategic objectives, personalities, and politics, the Americans and British were able to agree to quite a lot. The British, for their part, had always been uninterested in America's Pacific campaign and saw it as a distraction from dealing with Hitler. At Casablanca, they neglected to protest further operations in the Pacific, preventing a great deal of hand-wringing. 
Both parties made the easy decision to continue the strategic bombing campaign of Germany, but only after the Americans attempted to convince the British to switch to the much more dangerous, but much more accurate, daylight bombing raids. The British refused, but, even so, Germany would continue to be subject to 24-hour bombardment. The Americans agreed to an invasion of Sicily, codenamed Operation Husky, in the summer of 1943, which betrayed their instincts to avoid secondary fronts and to focus on the cross-channel invasion, but it satisfied Stalin's desire to maintain a second front and satisfied Churchill's desire to strike at the apocryphal soft underbelly of Europe. Speaking of the cross-channel invasion, the Allies agreed to delay it once again. Operation Torch had already delayed the cross-channel invasion, and agreeing to an invasion of Sicily would effectively result in it being delayed once again. The Americans didn't fully realize that, when they agreed to Husky, they were effectively agreeing to delay Overlord. Perhaps the most momentous decision made during Casablanca was the policy of unconditional surrender, which we touched on briefly when we discussed the end of the North Africa campaign. Up until this point, it was still theoretically possible for Germany, Italy, and Japan to reach terms with the Allies, either as a whole or individually, and vice versa. Most of all, Churchill feared Stalin making a separate peace with Hitler. Stalin had the same fear of the British and Americans, though. In retrospect, both fears seem unfounded. This was not some petty border dispute. This was an existential, ideological struggle for all parties, except maybe the Americans, for whom it was merely ideological, but not a true existential threat. The agreement to never give terms to the Axis altered the whole calculus of the war. For Japan, it ruined the entire logic of their war plan with the United States. The whole point was to make the war painful enough that the Americans would agree to a peace which would leave the Japanese Empire intact. Many have criticized the decision to embrace unconditional surrender, because it supposedly gave the Axis, and the Germans in particular, no out. They argue that it meant that the war was no longer against Nazism and Nazis, but against Germany as a whole, and that it would deter domestic anti-Nazi movements. I would argue that this is a distinction without a difference. The Nazis were Germany. The war could not end with Hitler as the head of state in Germany. Partly for reasons that the Allies could not yet fully fathom or know about, they were fighting against an enemy that had to be destroyed, not treated with. It is true that the announcement of the unconditional surrender policy provided Goebbels with a short-term propaganda victory. He used it to prove to the average soldier that the war the Allies were fighting was for the utter destruction of Germany, because they were powerful geopolitical rivals, not because the Nazis were so offensively belligerent that they could not be allowed to exist. Casablanca concluded with the outline of the rest of the war laid out. The Allies would invade Sicily in the summer of 1943, and the cross-channel invasion would occur sometime after that. At the time, they believed the fall of 1943. Events would unfold, however, to pull the Allies up the boot of Italy. When word reached Allied leaders' ears that Mussolini's grip on his country was failing, they could not pass up the opportunity to knock loose one of the Axis members. That is for a later episode, though. Casablanca also serves as a compelling inflection point in the war. Often, when looking at history, it feels as though the events that occurred were inevitable. Of course the Allies would invade North Africa first, then move up through Italy before the inevitable cross-channel invasion. Events like Casablanca reveal that these events were not predestined at all. They had to be agreed to and planned out. During the Casablanca conference, there were just as many troops under Eisenhower's command as under MacArthur's, about 350,000 apiece. Historically, the balance of forces would end up flowing to Eisenhower, 
Though that was by no means the only possible outcome, despite the Germany First policy. Had men like Admiral King had their way, the Pacific Theater would have been the predominant theater of American involvement until Japan was defeated. Had the long-considered, but never implemented, invasion of Norway occurred, that would likely look to us as inevitable, and an Atlantic landing in North Africa as an odd possibility that never occurred. A Norwegian invasion makes a lot of sense, too, as a secondary or tertiary front. If the northern coast of Norway were captured, it would secure the northern convoy routes to both the United Kingdom and to the Soviet Union. It would have allowed the Allies to interdict German heavy water supplies and cut off the U-boat training waters in the Baltic. Ultimately, it would also have provided a route directly into the heart of Germany that bypassed much of continental Europe. Despite all of these benefits, the invasion of Norway never occurred. Having said all of that, I'm now going to contradict myself a bit. Looking at the whole of the war, the route that was taken, Morocco, to Sicily, to mainland Italy, to Normandy, does seem in retrospect to be the most logical course of events. Morocco is lightly defended by the French rather than Germans, unlike Norway, which was garrisoned by the Wehrmacht. The British were already fighting in Libya, so this gave the Americans the chance to force the Germans to fight on two fronts in North Africa. It was easily the most obvious place to go for the initial tempering campaign. From there, Sicily is the next logical place to go, and from there the Italian boot. Once a toehold had been established in Italy, France does seem to be the next obvious place to go. The real fork in the road at this point is whether to invade France from the north or from the south. The south may seem a tempting target as it was less heavily defended and there was already significant allied buildup in the Mediterranean. The Channel Coast was across from the British home islands though, which served as a massive staging area and training ground for the invasion force. Ideally, your invasion site would be fairly close to this staging area, making the Channel Coast of France the most logical place to conduct the invasion. The only real question was where exactly to land. So perhaps, to a certain extent, the route the Allies took was somewhat preordained by geography and military economy. So what am I saying here? In the end, I think it's something of a mix between these two lenses that I just laid out. Obviously, as events progress, the whole gamut of possible routes lies before the historical participants. But there are certain paths that they can take which are likelier than others. And I believe the Allied leadership took the path of least resistance in some respects. They seized opportunities when they presented themselves, and they proceeded to the next objective in the most logical manner. They didn't take the scenic route, as it were. They took the most direct route to victory they could find, though that route, by necessity, had some detours along the way. Perhaps I'm adopting a sort of geographic determinist approach here, but geography does determine tactics much of the time. It follows that military events can seem deterministic if viewed through that lens. Or maybe I'm doing a little too much navel-gazing here. This bit of historical counterfactualism really only applies to the Western Allies, however. In the East, there was really only ever one option. Keep fighting on the massive, nearly endless steppe and stay alive. Yes, there were lots of tactical and operational options, but strategically, there wasn't really room to maneuver for Stalin. Really, the only strategic choice was what front to concentrate on. Obviously, there were lots of other strategic decisions to make in terms of sustaining the war effort and nation-state level maneuvers, but geographically, the whole thing was kind of one-dimensional. Thus, despite Stalingrad being a massive turning point in momentum, it wasn't necessarily a huge inflection point in terms of strategy. After Stalingrad, 
the fluid lines of the Eastern Front would continue to ebb and flow. As I mentioned in the last episode, Zhukov had initiated a theater-wide counteroffensive in southern Russia and Ukraine before the fall of Stalingrad. As the previous winter's counteroffensive lacked clear strategic or operational goals, so too did this one. The overall objective was for General Nikolai Vatutin of Southwest Front was to drive into southern Ukraine and cut off the German retreat from the Caucasus, and for the Voronezh Front to push west to capture the city of Kharkov. As it would happen, Vatutin's men would be the ones to press the assault on Kharkov. Despite the limited objectives, it was much more successful than the previous winter's offensive, at least on the surface. This time, Monstein had convinced Hitler that World War I-styled static defense and a yield-no-ground approach would only result in disaster. His confidence shaken from the disaster unfolding in Stalingrad, Hitler obliged Monstein and allowed German forces to withdraw. On January 12, 1943, when the first phase of the Soviet offensive began, the German front in southern Russia was already very unstable. The fall of Stalingrad and the initial success of the Red Army advance only threw the Ostheer into further disarray. Monstein's relief effort had been repulsed and pushed back to Rostov at the northeastern tip of the Sea of Azov. There was now a gap of 100 miles between Monstein's Army Group Don and Kleist's Army Group A, which was withdrawing from the lower Caucasus via the Kerch Strait. The continued push against the Hungarian contingent northwest of Stalingrad in Voronezh threatened to isolate Monstein from the north as well as from von Kluge's Army Group B, renamed Army Group Center, on February 12th. Without permission to withdraw, Monstein would likely have suffered the same fate as Paulus. In mid-February, Vatutin's southwest front reached the city of Kharkov in northeastern Ukraine. The city was defended by the elite 1st SS Panzer Corps, which included the notorious 1st Leibstandarte Adolf Hitler SS Panzer Division and the 2nd Das Reich SS Panzer Division. A relatively short but vicious two-day battle erupted as the Red Army assaulted the city to take it back from the Germans in what would become the Third Battle of Kharkov. After the Germans withdrew and the city fell, a huge gap lay open in the German lines. Army Group Center and Army Group South had a 200-mile gap between them. All three Soviet fronts had made huge gains and by mid-February had achieved most of their objectives. Lead elements had made it beyond the western bank of the Dernitz. All of these advances had come at a large cost, though. The men themselves were exhausted from advancing so far so quickly, and their equipment was showing signs of wear and tear, especially their armor, which was breaking down at an alarming rate. Despite this, the offensive was not halted. The spring thaw would be coming soon, and the Red Army needed to maximize its gains before then. Manstein had other ideas. Around the time Kharkov fell, Soviet reconnaissance aircraft began identifying large formations of German armor massing southwest of the salient that had formed around the city. Soviet leadership assumed this was just an organized rearguard action to prevent a total rout. They did not expect that these tanks would be the meat of Monstein's local counterattack. Beginning on February 20th, 4th Panzer Army, containing two SS Panzer Corps, with a 3rd Death's Head SS Panzer Division added to its roles, and 40 Panzer Corps, exploded east and north to attack General Popov's Front Mobile Group, which had been something of a spearhead element of the Soviet theater-wide offensive. Popov was in a tight spot. He was out of fuel and only had 50 operational tanks remaining from his whole army. The German thrust poised against him had over 400. 
Popov was doomed, and only a scant few of his men would escape encirclement and capture. With Front Mobile Group eliminated, Monstein could begin the second phase of his counterstroke, the capture of Kharkov. Monstein was launching a local counterattack that would be a textbook case in utilizing the characteristics of the offense as they are called in the modern U.S. Army doctrine. Audacity, surprise, concentration, and tempo. Monstein would achieve surprise and audacity by attacking the Red Army when they least expected it. The offense is inherently a bold action, and commanders must audaciously conduct attacks. Not only did they not expect a German armored thrust, but they were completely unprepared for it. He achieved concentration by employing his armored columns precisely. He did not spread them out with a general offensive the way the Red Army liked to. He pushed them in the exact places he needed them. Nor did he overcommit his tanks. He utilized economy of force, a critical element of concentration. He was successful in setting the tempo of the battle by first completely changing the momentum, but by then driving events faster than the Red Army could effectively react to them. Though tempo is not always about moving faster than the enemy, it is more about dictating the pace of the battle. On 7 March, the SS men sought to redeem their pride by retaking Kharkov. They quickly seized the northern suburbs, and within a week, the city was surrounded. The situation was so bad for the Red Army that the Stavka didn't even bother to try and reinforce it. Instead, they sent troops to bolster the Voronezh front in the vicinity of Kursk, about 100 miles north of Kharkov. Though they wouldn't admit it, this signaled the end of the Soviet Winter Offensive of 1943. The Dnieper River was still over 200 miles to the west, but the Rasputista was only about four to five weeks out. There was no way the Red Army could win before the onset of the weather-enforced timeout, even if Monstein hadn't devised a brilliant counterattack. The few remaining weeks of winter also provided the perfect environment for Monstein's tanks to wreak havoc and do their deadly work. With the ground frozen, they could maneuver as they pleased. Even after Red Army leadership realized what was happening and started to organize defenses and tactical withdrawals, they were still horribly exposed. Thanks to the clear weather, visibility stretched out for miles, allowing German artillery to engage withdrawing Soviet troops from immense distances. The lack of fuel and ammunition meant the Soviet tanks could hardly resist German armored thrusts effectively, turning their successful offensive into, at best, a Pyrrhic victory. Monstein's counterattack was brilliant, but it shouldn't be oversold. Yes, he was very successful locally, but it was only an operational victory, not a strategic one. He managed to stabilize the southern front along the Darnitz and suck the wind from the sails of the Red Army. Monstein capitalized on the strengths of the German army and used the Red Army's weaknesses against them. The German army, being a very professional force, had the emotional staying power that the Red Army didn't have yet. The German army was able to recover from setbacks and defeats that the Red Army just wasn't able to do. After a devastating defeat like Stalingrad, the rest of the Ostier continued to fight professionally and effectively. When under pressure from German attacks, many Red Army units still broke and fled. They didn't have the ability to hold together. The effects of relying on a largely conscript army and having capable leadership purged prior to the war made the Red Army very susceptible to emotional defeats. As time wore on, and Soviet troops gained more experience, this problem would fade. When the spring thaw set in, the front stabilized around the Dernitz, but the Soviets retained a large salient around the town of Kursk. The Stavka, reeling from being repulsed, needed time to lick their wounds and wait for reinforcements to arrive from the latest rounds of conscription 
and for the factories that have been moved eastward, now operational again, to turn out more equipment. At the beginning of spring 1943, despite operational setbacks, the Red Army was increasing in both quality and quantity. The Soviets invested heavily in artillery. By the time of the Battle of Kursk, the Red Army would have the strongest artillery arm in the world. They even went so far as to organize whole artillery divisions, something completely unprecedented. Time was essentially on their side. They just needed to hold off disaster. The massive fighting in the South did have an unintended side effect of allowing the Russians to consolidate more frontage in the North. The Wehrmacht was forced to send so many troops south to bolster the collapsing front that the North was left relatively weakened. The Red Army aimed to use this to their advantage to pinch off two German salients and relieve Leningrad. The Wehrmacht saw the Red Army masking against the Vyazma salient west of Moscow and the Demyansk pocket, and thus withdrew to prevent either from being encircled. Similarly, the Red Army launched a limited offensive to reopen the land route to Leningrad to relieve the siege and were successful. The Ost here had the opposite economic problem from the Stavka. There were no more conscripts to bring in, and industrial output was already nearing its peak. They needed to renew the offensive as soon as possible. The moment the ground dried out and maneuver was possible again, the Germans needed to capitalize on the Red Army's weakness and renew the offensive. Thus, Operation Citadel was born. Operation Citadel was the German summer offensive of 1943 against the Kursk salient. The idea was for the operation to take the form of the classic encirclement. Model's 9th Panzer Army, under Army Group Center, would attack from the north, and Hoth's 4th Army, under Army Group South, would attack from the south. This included 17 Panzer Divisions, with the brand new Panther and Tiger tanks streaming into their formations, as well as the new Elephant Assault Gun an assault gun at this point in the war, essentially just being a tank destroyer. Their combined strength on the day of the attack would include 2,700 tanks and 1,800 supporting aircraft. From their attack positions, the German formations would rush to meet each other east of Kursk and attempt to cut off the Soviet formation within the salient. On April 15th, Hitler signed the order committing Army Group Center and Army Group South to the attack with a start day of May 3rd. Almost immediately, Hitler began to have misgivings about the operation, and soon delays began to set in. Model, commander of 9th Panzer Army, believed he needed more armor to reach his objectives, so requested a postponement until more tanks could be found. Hitler agreed, and the attack was delayed until sometime in mid-June. Heinz Guderian, now head of Panzer troops, promised to deliver a thousand tanks a month, but warned that the new Panzer V Panther tanks still had some bugs to be worked out before it was completely ready. Regardless, the Panther was pushed to the front. After delaying the operation by six weeks, Citadel was again delayed when Guderian said he needed more time to produce tanks. Then, on June 18th and June 25th, Model demanded more tanks for his formations to deal with the rapidly improving Soviet defenses across from him. After so much dithering and delaying, Hitler was beginning to sense that he was losing the initiative. On June 29th, he set a hard date for Citadel to begin, July 5th. Every day that passed, the Germans were losing relative combat power, not gaining it, because the Russians had sniffed out the whole thing right from the beginning. If Hitler had been up against the Red Army of 1941, the Battle of Kursk would have been yet another massively successful encirclement. But the Red Army of 1943 was a far cry from that of 1941. Soviet leadership was wise to German tactics, 
and had learned a few tricks of their own. The Soviets were concealment and infiltration experts now, and had a massive artillery arm. Their tank crews, now with their superior T-34, were no longer green conscripts, but experienced veterans who understood armored war just as well as their adversaries. Having been at war with the masters of armored war for two years, the Red Army was also now geared toward an anti-armor fight. 21,000 light anti-tank guns had been distributed to infantry formations, and 200 anti-tank regiments had been formed with the highly effective 76mm anti-tank gun. What's more, Soviet industry was now mobilized, as was its population. By mid-1943, the Red Army was 6.5 million men strong, despite having lost over 3 million men in the preceding two years of war. In comparison, the Ostier was only about 3.1 million strong, 200,000 men weaker than it had been when Barbarossa began. Having realized that the Germans were almost certain to attack the Kursk salient as early as April 12th, the Stavka devised a plan to take advantage of the Germans' intentions. Once again, Red Army leadership had found a way to turn the Germans' machinations against them. The Stavka decided to allow the Germans to attack the salient and let them wear themselves out bashing their formations against well-prepared defenses. Huge amounts of equipment were funneled to the defense of Kursk to create an enormous defense in depth. The Soviets laid as many as 40,000 mines in fields miles deep and tens of miles long. The civilian population in the vicinity of the salient, up to 300,000 people, was mobilized to construct tank ditches and other defensive works, totaling eight defensive lines 100 miles deep. The Red Army did not overcommit to the defense of the Kursk salient, however. Yes, monumental effort was devoted to fortifying the country around Kursk, and literally tons of material was poured in, but an operational reserve was maintained to give the Stavka the ability to maneuver against the attack. Ultimately, the defense of the salient was not meant to repel the attack, but to absorb it. By the time the Germans actually began the attack, the Central Front under Rokossovsky and the Voronezh front under Vatutin were in well-prepared defensive positions, with 60 divisions between them. They had all of the artillery support they could want, and enormous air armies were committed to their support. Each Soviet front had up to 800 aircraft under its own operational control. On July 5th, the German columns rolled forward, and perhaps the greatest single battle of the 20th century, and certainly the largest tank battle ever fought, was underway.